Good morning. Welcome to The Point, the radio ministry of Life Point Baptist Church of Early Texas. Life Point meets for Sunday school at 10 a.m., morning worship at 11 a.m., and we meet at the Early Chamber of Commerce Small Business Incubator Facility, which is located at 104 East Industrial Drive, just off of Highway 377, back behind where they're building the new townhomes. We hope to be able to meet with you this morning, and if not this morning, maybe sometime in the near future. Once again, Life Point meeting for Sunday school at 10 a.m., morning worship at 11, and we meet at the Early Chamber of Commerce Small Business Incubator Facility. This morning, I'd like to continue our series in the book of Revelation, so we'll look at Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, we'll read the entire chapter, 17 verses in all. Revelation chapter 6, we're going to talk about those seals, okay? The seals of the book and the breaking of those seals. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, the Bible says, And when I saw, and I saw, When the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts, saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And behold, and I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth, to kill with sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beast of the earth. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God, and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also, and their brethren that should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. And the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell in unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens, and in the rocks of the mountains. And said unto the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, who shall be able to stand? Now, as we read through the book of Revelation, we need to remember that the book of Revelation was written to prepare the churches for the coming of the Lord. 
which means that the book of Revelation was not written to teach the generation left after the tribulation the wrath that was to come upon them, but rather to prepare those of us living in the here and now for the end times, for the signs and the things that would happen leading up to the return of the Lord. The book of Revelation was written to prepare God's people for his return. And you see that in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. In chapter one, we see the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ. And in chapters two and three, the Lord Jesus Christ addresses his churches, the church at Ephesus, the church of Smyrna, the church of Thyatira, the church at Philadelphia, the church at Laodicea. He, he is preparing these churches by addressing situations specific within those particular churches. And what we can take from chapters two and three, as we begin the book of Revelation, I mean, if God were to write a book strictly about policy, about prophecy, then he would write a book strictly about prophecy, but he begins that prophetic book by addressing his churches that were on the continent of Asia. And the reason he did that is because the book of Revelation is not merely about prophecy, but it's about preparing his people for his return. And so that's what the book of Revelation is all about. And so chapter one reveals to us the glorified, resurrected Jesus Christ. Chapters two and three address seven particular churches on the continent of Asia, particularly in the area that's now modern day Turkey. And it addresses specific issues within those churches, but we can take lessons from what the Lord tells those churches. Chapters four and five shows us God's perspective from his throne room the way the Lord sees the world, the way the Lord is operating, and the, the way the Lord represents himself in his throne room. And that brings us to chapter 6, which shows us the beginning of the events that will lead up to the Lord's return. Now, the interesting thing about this, the interesting thing about uh, chapter 6 here is that we're given the image of a scroll, a giant book, that has been sealed with seven seals. Now, this scroll, this book, if you will, contains the fulfillment of end-time prophecy, the fulfillment of God's plan with man, and it has been sealed into seven sections. Now, in Scripture, the number seven is a symbolic number of completion. And so as each seal is broken, more fulfilled prophecy is revealed, and we come one step closer to the completion of God's plan with man. Now, the purpose of the seven-year tribulation, and this is uh, what we're going to be talking about in the, in the next few weeks on this program, and the purpose of this tribulation, we have to remember, is to bring man to repentance or to line him up for judgment. The tribulation itself is not the judgment. That happens at the end of the tribulation. The tribulation is about bringing man to repentance or forcing him to make a decision which will line him up to judgment. In other words, in the final seven years of our time on this earth, of our time in this world, you're not going to be able to plead ignorance. You're not going to be able to plead plausible deniability. You're not going to be able to say that I haven't really made a decision about the Lord because with the cataclysmic events that will be taking place in the tribulation, you'll be forced to admit and acknowledge that there is God. You will be forced to admit and to acknowledge that there is Christ. You will not be able to say, well, I'm still undecided on that because with the events that are taking place, there will be no other explanation for those events other than God is moving. In fact, even in our passage today, in chapter 6, the rich men of the earth and the men of the world and the, and the servants and the free men, they were all saying, hide 
us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So even in chapter 6 here, before we even kick into high gear, we see that man has already seen that we see that man has already seen that God is in control and that he's pouring out his wrath on the earth. And so they know what's going on. The issue is that they were rejecting him and that they were still rebelling against God. And so the purpose of the seven-year tribulation is to do just that. It is to bring man to that point to where he has to make that decision. So in Revelation chapter 6, we see three things. We see the severity of the tribulation. We see the necessity of the tribulation. And we see redemption in the tribulation. First, let's look at the severity of the tribulation The severity happens, first of all, in world events. We look at verse 2, and the Bible says in Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. The rider of the white horse conquers the world, but notice that he doesn't do this through a military conquest. He doesn't do this through violence. He's riding a white horse which shows peace and royalty. Verse 4 says that there was peace that was taken from the earth. So in verse 2, when we see the rider on the white horse, he has a bow and a crown. Notice this crown was given unto him. And so he assumes power. He conquers the world, but he doesn't conquer the world through military conquest. He conquers the world through political conquest, through political affiliations, through political um, agreements and treaties and connections and affiliations. This conquest was a political conquest. It's a centralization of power under one man. Hence, in verse 2, the crown was given unto him. This leader kind of becomes a false messiah, a messianic figure. He kind of gets to a point to where he enjoys almost universal popularity, and he will use this to battle against God. By the way, if you're listening to this program today, and and if you're listening and you're a Democrat, but you're also a Christian, and you wonder why so many Christians are Republicans and why so many Christians rail against government when government in Scripture, by and large, is seen as ordained of God and having purpose of God. If, if, you wonder, if you've always wondered about that, it's not that Christians hate government. It's not that Christians don't like government or that they're anarchist or, or that sort of thing. The reason Christians are suspicious of centralized government It's because centralized power, especially centralized power under one man or under a few people, is always anti-Christian. If you look back through the history of the world, I dare you to find one powerful central government that was Christian, that was truly Christian. Now, there were some that claimed Christianity, but they didn't actually believe and function as Christians, okay? If we look back over the history of the world, you look at strong centralized government, where was the Christianity in that? Generally, you don't see it. In fact, generally, when you see strong centralized government, you see fights against Christianity. 
You look back at the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union outlawed the Bible in most cases. There were a few cases where you could possibly have a government-sanctioned church, but you were only allowed to preach and teach what the government said you could teach. You go back to uh, Communist China, which is still going on right now. In Communist China, Christians over there are still being persecuted, still being thrown in jail for listening to Christian radio programming from overseas. Um, If you're not in one of the licensed churches and they're actually beginning to eliminate those, then you can be thrown into prison for attending church or for holding a Bible without having the proper credentials to have a Bible. In China, they treat uh, Bible ownership like a lot of states in the United States treat gun ownership. You know, you have to register it. You have to show that you're responsible enough to be able to have one. See, centralized power tends to be anti-Christian against God. And not just anti-Christians, against Christians, but against the Christ and the God that Christians worship and believe in. We go back uh, Nazi Germany. Uh, Hitler was not a Christian. Hitler was tolerating churches and various forms of Christianity so that he could remain in power, but his ultimate goal was to get that out of the equation as well. Uh, You go back to the empires of the Empire Age, and you look at how Rome persecuted Christians. But then you go back into Scripture, and you can see this in Scripture. King Herod tried to have Christ killed. You look at the way... The empires of the Old Testament handled uh, handled God and handled God's people. I mean, whenever you've had strong centralized power, it's always been anti-God, anti-Christian. And that's why Christians have always been suspicious of centralized power. And the reason so many Christians tend to flock toward small, limited government affiliated parties today, the reason why so many Christians tend to lean toward the Republican Party and toward the Libertarian Party or toward being independent altogether is because Christians mistrust, distrust centralized power for this reason, because the centralization of power in today's political system is leading into this situation where this Antichrist can take power here in Revelation chapter 6. And that's the will of God, that's the plan of God, but it doesn't mean that we want to help that into, it doesn't mean that we want to see that happen during our lifetimes. It, it, it means that you know we, we understand God's provision in things, but it doesn't necessarily mean we want to experience the bad parts of those. And so that's why Christians tend to be um, suspicious of centralized power and centralized government. And so we see in world events in Revelation chapter 6, we see a political conquest. A man rise to power, and power is centralized under him, and he kind of becomes a dictator. And he conquers the world through political affiliations and through political connections and by playing politics as well as he can. So that's one world event we see in the tribulation. Second world event we see is total warfare. We go to verses 3 and 4, and the Bible says, And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. And so when this one man conquers the world politically, there's world peace. But then in verses 3 and 4, we see that peace was taken from the earth. The first seal was a false peace under a politically savvy world leader. The second seal is total warfare. So you look at total warfare throughout the entire world, and we've seen precedent for this in the 20th century. We, we saw World War I, and we saw World War II, and those were, those were horrendous wars that took the lives of millions of people, uh, totally altered the face of the world and the world as we understood it. World Wars I and II were just warm-ups 
for this upcoming total war that's going to engulf the entire world in the book of Revelation. In fact, World Wars I and II were so severe that there were many preachers and theologians at the time that thought that they were seeing the book of Revelation played out right before their eyes. But the Bible tells us, and Jesus told us in Matthew 24, that there would be wars and rumors of wars, and that nation would rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Those cataclysmic wars were foretold that they would be forerunners of the big one that's going to take place in Revelation chapter 6. And so World Wars 1 and 2 were just warm-ups for the total war that will be waged when the second seal is broken in Revelation chapter 6. This world war that is described in Revelation chapter 6 will be one like the world has never seen before, and it will lead to total devastation of the world, which leads to the next horse in verses 5 and 6. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see, thou hurt not the oil and the wine. The third seal is famine. A penny, as described in Scripture, a penny was a day's wage. And so if you were a day laborer, if you were a worker, you went out and you would work, they'd give you a penny at the end of the day. And for that penny, you should have been able to provide for your family. But in Revelation chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, the Bible tells us that a penny would purchase a measure of wheat or three measures of barley. And a measure of wheat or three measures of barley was enough for one meager, small meal. So in the book of Revelation, following this cataclysmic worldwide war, there's going to be a famine to the point that food is going to be so expensive that it would take a day's work to earn one meal. And that doesn't pay for housing or anything else, just that one meal for a day's labor. The high price of food obviously would be driven by low supply. And there's historical precedent for this, by the way. Uh, following World War I, there was a famine following World War I. And the reason there was a famine following World War I is because all the farmers went to the battlefields. And with the farmers in the battlefields, nobody's cultivating the fields. And the few fields that were being cultivated, the little bit of agriculture that was taking place, a lot of that was destroyed in the war. The, the fields, you know, burned as bombs were dropped, as uh, soldiers moved through. And so the food supply... Europe's food supply during World War I was more or less destroyed, and this led to a great famine in World War I, to the point that when World War II broke out, farmers in Europe were, they were exempted from military service. Now, that famine that took place following World War I led to weakened people with weakened immune systems, which led to the flu epidemic of, I believe it was 1917, 1918. The, this, the flu epidemic following World War I wound up killing more people than the war itself killed. And so the war leads to a famine. There's no food supply there, and so food is expensive. So people are working all day in order to earn a meal. And this leads to pestilence, it leads to disease outbreaks, it leads to pandemics, which leads to massive death. And we continue reading, we go into verse 8 in Revelation chapter 6, and it says, And behold, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. 
And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beast of the earth. War leads to famine, which leads to disease, which leads to massive death. And again, I mentioned the flu pandemic following World War I. This will be on a global scale. Now, these are all terrifying things, yet the Lord remains on his throne. And the Bible teaches us that we should trust him. So as we open the seven seals of Revelation, we see a political conquest, a man rising to power, centralized power, basically a worldwide dictator. We see world war taking place. We see a famine taking place. We see pestilences and pandemics taking place after the famine. And then we see the persecution of God's people. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, the Bible says, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. Those under the altar were those who were killed for their faith and they cried out for justice. In the seven year tribulation, persecution against Christians will be rampant. And that persecution will try and refine your faith but it will also lead to multitudes of salvations. And then in verses 12 through 17, we see that natural disasters will be taking place, which totally changes the way the world looks and the way the world functions. So that's the severity of the tribulation, these seven years leading up to the return of Christ. And, it's, and it seems severe, it sounds severe, something that nobody says, hey, I, I hope I'll live through that. And there are those who would wonder, why would a loving God put the entire world through that? And that brings us to our next point, the necessity of the tribulation. In Matthew 24, 6, Jesus tells us, See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. The first thing Jesus tells us is to be not troubled. That word troubled means to be disturbed, disturbed to be stirred. He says, be not troubled. Be not stirred, be not desperate, be not angry, be not fearful, be not troubled. Why? Jesus said in Matthew 24, 6, See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. Jesus says they must come to pass. You see, if they didn't have to come to pass, then we wouldn't have to worry about this. But they must come to pass. Jesus tells us that the events of the tribulation must happen. It's a necessity. It has to happen. You see, God does not put us through elective suffering. He does not put us through suffering and pain and anguish that we don't have to go through. The trial of our faith, which Peter wrote, refines our faith like gold, which is tried by fire. The trial of our faith is not pointless. It's not elective. The Lord does not put us through things that we don't need to go through. The events of the tribulation are needed. They're necessary. Jesus said, all these things must come to pass. Why? The purpose of these things is to bring people to a decision about Christ so that he can return to this earth. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, the Bible says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression 
and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. The purpose of the tribulation is to accomplish what these 70 weeks are for. The tribulation itself is the 70th week, the last seven-year period in that time period. And the purpose of this is to put an end to the transgression, to put an end to man's rebellion, to put an end to sin, and to reconcile man with God, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to establish God's kingdom on earth. And so when we look at the events of the seven-year tribulation and we look at the severity of what's going on in the book of Revelation, this is not God being really angry and just using the world as his punching bag and taking out his wrath and anger on people who are just doing their thing. I once worked for a man who told me that as he read the Bible, what he read was anger from God. And the events of the tribulation, that's not anger from God. The seven-year, the 70-year tribulation, Babylonian captivity in the Old Testament was not anger from God. The the things that God does in the scriptures, this is not God losing his temper and taking out his frustrations on his people. God's not mad at you, and he hasn't forgotten you. We don't go through the tribulation because God's forgotten that his people are still on this earth as he pours out his wrath on everybody. That's not what's going on here. God is taking the necessary steps to bring the world to repentance. As many men will repent, he is taking the necessary steps to bring them to repentance. This is a biblical concept, by the way. You read the book of Romans. Read Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30. The Bible tells us, whom the Lord did foreknow, he predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. And those he foreknew He predestined, and those he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. What Romans 8, 29 through 30 tells us that the Lord knows whether you have repentance in you. The Lord knows whether you will repent at the hearing of his gospel, whether you will hear his word and turn to him, whether you will turn from your sins and you'll trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. He knows whether or not you'll make that decision. And he knows what it will take to bring you to that decision. And so the Lord predestines things. He lines things up in your life to bring you to that point of decision where you turn from your sins and you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. What's going on in the seven-year tribulation is that the Lord accelerates this for all mankind to where all mankind has to make a decision as to whether or not to trust the Lord as their Savior or to reject him altogether and to fight against him. In the final battle, there's going to be two groups of people. There are going to be those who were raptured out, who returned to be at the side of Christ at that final battle. And then there will be those who line up to fight against him. The entire world would have made its decision one way or the other. And that brings us to the redemption that we find in the tribulation. We look in verse 11. And white robes are given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren, which should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. These white robes symbolize righteousness. In fact, clothing symbolizes spirituality in Scripture. 
we get the idea that cleanliness is next to godliness. That's not actually in Scripture. But if you look at the way the Bible talks about clothing, you see that there's a, a spiritual application there. Like the high priest was required to wear clean clothing because it represented righteousness. And if the high priest, if his clothes had gotten dirty, then he was required to change those, which is why in the book of Zechariah, when you see when you see Joshua, the high priest, standing before the Lord wearing filthy clothing, that's a big deal because Joshua, the high priest, stood before the Lord representing his people and representing the filth of his people. These white robes that are given to these saints that are under the altar, it is symbolic of their righteousness. Their sin had been removed and they had been given the righteousness of Christ. And here they are in the Lord's presence and they're told that they should rest, that they should no more labor that they would no more suffer, that they should no more worry or fret or be frightened. They could now rest. Ultimately, we will be brought into the presence of the Lord. All of this to get us to make a decision, to trust Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Have you made that decision? And if you have not, will you make that decision? Life Point Baptist Church meets for Sunday school at 10 a.m., morning worship at 11 a.m., and we meet at the Early Chamber of Commerce Small Business Incubator Facility, which is located at 104 East Industrial Drive in Early. So if you're putting it on your GPS system, 104 East Industrial Drive, Early, Texas, 76802. Uh, it's located right behind where the new Longhorn Townhomes are being built, just off of Highway 377. Look forward to meeting you today. If I don't get to meet you today, maybe sometime in the near future. May God bless you. May God keep you. It will always be our daily prayer.